it scares people to have someone who doesn't appear stable. And that's just kind of the first place we go is, uh-oh, are you going to hurt me? Are you ready? Are you sitting down? The Shine On Podcast 2022. I've said before and I'll say it again. Divorce affects so many people out there. The money, the property, the assets, so many high-profile divorces. The conflict, the allegations, huge legal fee and support awards. You name it. Divorce is a true team sport. Incredible insight. Top divorce stories. Shine On Podcast. Shine On Podcast. The Shine On Podcast 2022. It's episode 52 of the Shine On Podcast. I'm Evan Shine. We have a great show today, starting with a fantastic docket put together by producer Dave. And Dave, before we get to the docket and preview our upcoming featured guest this week on the podcast, let's take a moment and talk holidays because, well, it's holiday time. And as we have talked about before, holidays, while fun, while a time of celebration, while a time of joy and happiness can also be really hard and really stressful for people either going through a divorce or in the years following divorce. Dave, let me ask you, happy Thanksgiving. How was your day? It was great. Thank you. Happy Thanksgiving to you. Plenty, plenty, plenty to be thankful for. My Thanksgiving was fine. Low-key hung out with my parents, who I just helped them move to a different apartment, and so their life is kind of topsy-turvy, but good to spend time with them. When I got divorced, for whatever it's worth, Thanksgiving was very important to my ex-wife. And so I said, that's yours. Take it. And so, and so she she makes <laughs> she makes plenty of other concessions to me. I don't get that sentimental around Thanksgiving for whatever reason. And so, but then my, my son, younger son home from college, and they went to Philadelphia for a couple of days with, with her family. And then I was able to spend some time with my son over the weekend. So everybody won. Good. Glad you had a nice Thanksgiving and it's nice when it all works out. But I have to ask you, what's the Thanksgiving food that producer Dave just needs to have on Thanksgiving? We talk about this a lot and it never gets old because they're all delicious. But I mean, (laughs) I love I mean, I love a good casserole no matter what it is. I love all variations on mashed potatoes. But I think the top the leader in the clubhouse for me in recent years has become mac and cheese. It just It's a nice compliment, and uh, I don't think I've ever had bad mac and cheese. <laughs> Interesting. Mac yeah. and cheese, I like it. Look, my you know daughter yeah. likes it too, but yeah. look, I, I'm original. I like yep. stuffing. Can't be without it, but look, I'm going to be honest, because for years, my mother-in-law, she always pushes to start with a salad, mm. and she wants to have a course dedicated to just salad, mm. and every year I say the exact same thing. Who the hell wants to eat salad? <laughs> On Thanksgiving. I mean, who pushes off the main meal so people can sit down and eat salad first? Look, people come for the turkey, the stuffing, the sweet potatoes. Apparently, in your world, people come for the casserole and the mac and cheese. But look, it's like going to see Springsteen, and the opening act is a no-name that seemingly goes on forever. Nobody wants the opening act, and no one wants the salad. But look, I need to give my mother-in-law some credit. Great Thanksgiving spread this year. And finally, Dave, finally, 10 Thanksgiving meals later, there was no salad. No salad. Good. Finally, there was no salad. Although I did have to push up the meal start time a little bit. But look, I'll take the no salad and I'll run with it. Yeah, the just just a a few bites of one salad could mean one fewer yam or one fewer 
a, a smaller slice of pumpkin pie, and you can't afford to make that mistake on Thanksgiving. It's a crucial mistake. I mean, it's absolutely a crucial mistake. But, Dave, let's shift from the food to the feelings. What are the emotions that you feel this time of year, having gone through a divorce? And does holiday time get easier with the passage of time? Maybe a little bit. I I think it kind of goes in waves. It takes a little getting used to. And I guess what I'd say to people is if you got divorced with an eye towards getting yourself in a happier place, then you did the right thing. No one can decide that except you. And so you shouldn't, you shouldn't live with uh, regret or, but you will always have, you will always miss things. Divorce is always, I think a little bit sad. Even the most amicable divorces will be a little bit sad. You're going to be spending with different people, but knock on wood, I get along with my ex. I'm reminded of the story of my, my uncle Mike and my aunt Maureen who got divorced. And it was, I think a little bit of an acrimonious divorce and we didn't see him for a few years. And then all of a sudden he started appearing again at holiday things. And after a while it was natural to see him at family things. We wanted to see him and his ex-wife, my aunt Maureen, she wanted to see him there too. So I, I like to be an optimist and think that these things can change over time. Always be a little bit of sadness, but you know, you'll, you'll come back to some version of, of happiness and hopefully not feeling, feeling too sentimental and sad. And Dave, we are in full holiday mode here on the Shine Up podcast. And Christmas comes just a little bit early on the <laughs> podcast this week as we have an absolutely tremendous featured guest. And today, I sit down for an incredible interview with Dr. Tracy Marks, who is a general and forensic psychiatrist with over 20 years experience. She's the author of the terrific book, Why Am I So Anxious? We're going to talk with Dr. Marks about her book and her mission to increase mental health awareness. Today, we talk all things mental health and dive into the interplay between family law matters and mental health. And we asked Dr. Marks, who has devoted so much of her career to education in the mental health field, what does she want her legacy to be? So stay tuned for the answer to this and so much more coming up from my great conversation with Dr. Tracy Marks. But first, Dave, let's get right into the docket. Let's do it, my friend. Now, let's see what's on the docket. Just like your spread at Thanksgiving, a jam-packed version of the docket. And the first one comes to us from Yahoo Entertainment. Item one. Headline reads, Robin Wright will keep her Golden Globe Award in the divorce settlement. House of Cards actress Robin Wright has settled her divorce from St. Laurent executive Clement Girardier. I'm not sure if that's how pronounced his name, Evan, but he's no longer Mr. Wright, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> and she is keeping all of her awards, including her Golden Globe. Now, to me, I thought, uh, of course she keeps her Golden Globe, but uh, well, your thoughts on this, Evan? Dave, my thoughts are, I have two words, post-nuptial agreement. And look, we've <laughs> yeah. talked before in the podcast about the benefits of entering into both a prenuptial agreement and a postnuptial agreement. And this is an agreement that spells out and sets forth how assets are going to be divided. But it doesn't stop there. You can address spousal support, legal fees, protecting a business, stock options, what assets are going to be marital and subject to division in a divorce, or the assets that are going to be separate property. The prenup and postnup conversation is one that I'm having, Dave, on an almost daily basis. Mm. And it makes all the sense in the world for so many people 
And it made all the sense in the world for Robin Wright. Look, reports are that Wright acknowledged that she has a postnuptial agreement, which spells out exactly what the other will get in the divorce. And even in the short-term marriage that Wright had, having an agreement prevented litigation over so many issues. The issues that were settled likely in the postnuptial agreement that she had included the Golden Globe Award that she won for her popular show, House of Cards, along with any trademarks in her name. And the reports are that she'll also keep payments and royalties and earnings and income and fees that were generated from her TV career. And look, Dave, you mentioned this seems obvious to you, but what may feel obvious in the right settlement, no pun intended, Mm. the reality is when couples divorce, what feels right is often not the right way assets are divided, which is why the postnuptial agreement in this situation for Robin Wright, who is a successful actress, made so much sense and saved so much time, so much litigation, so much legal fees, battling over issues that were already resolved in a postnuptial agreement. We move to another celebrity divorce, this time an athlete, and this item comes from EssentiallySports.com. Item two. Headline says, divorce is actually more functional. That was Chris Everett's poignant realization about life's harsh, harsh nature after three failed marriages in 2011. Things were not great, reads the article, when Chris Everett and Andy Mill divorced. For a minute, she thought of a happily ever after life with Greg Norman. I didn't realize they were married. I don't know if you did, Evan. However, no, did I? I didn't know. Yeah, I think it was for a blink of an eye, about 15, 15 months or so. Correct. And 15 months later, they got divorced. But even then, reads the article, she managed to build an um, amicable relationship with former husband Andy Mill, who is the father of their children. Your thoughts on this item, Evan? Dave, yeah, look, this is a story of how Chris Everett, you know, built the relationship that you describe, really an amicable relationship with Andy Mill, the father of her children, how despite the devastation, the destruction, the dark days that filled her divorce from Andy Mills and then Greg Norman, as you mentioned, she was able to find a way to communicate, co-parent, and be cordial with Andy Mills. What helped her do this? Look, that's the magic question that so many people want the answer to, the secret, the strategy, the science of how to make a co-parenting relationship work. And look, there is no one-size-fits-all secret. It's different for each and every person. No, but the article goes on to talk about how Everett and Mills lived only 15 minutes away so they both could be close to their children. So I'm willing to bet that this played a tremendous role in their co-parenting relationship and their ability to parent their kids and the respect they had for each other. But Dave Everett has a powerful line from the article, one that I read over and over. Divorce is actually more functional than many marriages. And so, Dave, let me ask you your thoughts on this line as you think back and you share your experiences with other people who are going through divorce, who might be on the fence. Should I get divorced? Should I stay in this marriage? I, as a divorce attorney, I counsel people on this all the time as well. But what are your thoughts on a line like Everett says, divorce is actually more functional than many, many marriages? Well, it can be. Uh, I mean, I think she's describing best best case scenario because when we talk about these things, we have to be respectful to the people who are going through really nasty divorces where nothing's functional, right? Because we know they're out there. You obviously know they're out there, Evan. But I think part of the reason why she may say that is because once you get past the the hurt feelings and everything, a divorce is really a plan as Evan, you construct them. And so therefore you kind of 
have a lot out in the open, like when is when are we going to spend time with this kid? Who's going to pick up whom? And it gets all laid out many times, written down on paper. And it's it's kind of settles a lot of things that maybe a married couple never really gets out in the open. Who's responsible for what? Who pays for what? And I think that's why she may say that. So there is some comfort to the structure of a divorce. Next on the docket comes from the Washington Post, and it is subject of an advice column. Item three. Columnist in the Washington Post, Carolyn Hacks, is, receives the following letter. Soon-to-be ex-husband talks trash about their divorce. Dear Carolyn, the writer says, my soon-to-be ex-husband is a lying coward, telling everyone and making social media posts claiming our divorce is devastating and gut-wrenching, when none of that is true. And she asks the, the writer who identifies herself as the wounded party, should, uh, should I shut his crap down by telling everyone the true story of our breakup? I won't, I'll keep people, I, we won't tell people what uh, Carolyn said, Evan, because we want to hear what you would have to say about this. What a tough spot, Dave, and a spot so many people find themselves in. I have three takes, and they're all tied together. My first take is take the high road. In the short term, you may want to correct the narrative, the lies, the false story that's being put out there by your soon-to-be ex. I get it. But remember this. You were going to talk to the people that are closest to you anyway and the people you trust and confide in. Let those people be your people, the people you share with. You don't need to get into a battle of words with your soon-to-be ex. Remember, it's something your kids may see. It's something your kids may hear. You don't want to get into the blame game on whose fault the divorce was. Take two. Remember, you still need to co-parent. Taking the high road will help you do that. Take the high road not only for yourself, but for your children. And selfishly, it's going to make your co-parenting relationship with your ex that much better. Three, do things for you. Do things that make you happy as you navigate this tough time and transition to life after divorce. And if you need help, a pick-me-up, a motivational person by your side, there's so many wonderful people out there, divorce coaches, therapists, people we've had on the podcast, the list goes on and on to help you make this transition and to feel energized about yourself and your future during one of the darkest times in your life. But let's go from dear Caroline to dear Dave. What are your <laughs> thoughts? Should she go public? Should she correct the narrative in social circles, friends? It's a tough, it's a tough question. Well, as I'm a podcast guy, I'm not a practicing lawyer, but I am still a member of the bar. And one of the tried and true tenets of any litigation is don't put it in writing unless you have to. And don't put, don't put it in writing without realizing that it could come back to haunt you. That's what I kept thinking about in this one is, is why put the dirty laundry on social media? Why are you just trying? This, this to me is uh, a symptom of kind of the worst social media phenomenon. I admit I do go on Facebook a fair amount, and sometimes people are just asking for sympathy. They just write in their, on their Facebook post, man, I'm having the worst day, dot, dot, dot. Come on, <laughs> don't try to don't tell the world and go. That's pathetic. Go to a close friend. If you're if your divorce really is devastating and gut wrenching, why are you writing that on your Facebook page instead of talking to your best friend or your therapist about it? Let me ask you, could this something like this come back to to haunt him in the divorce proceedings? No, absolutely. Look, it could backfire without a doubt. Look, your advice is advice I give to clients all the time, which is anything you put in writing. Before you hit the send button, 
ask yourself the following question. What would a judge think of what I just wrote? Because every email, every text message, every written communication that you have with your ex could potentially be used at your divorce trial in motion papers shown to your shown to the judge presiding over your case, making decisions about yourself and your children. Ask yourself that question. And if you have to hesitate for more than 10 seconds, don't send the email. So Evan, first time on the show, on the Shine On Podcast, we have listener feedback and a listener question. In this installment of Ask Ask Evan, Evan. we've received the following question from Bonnie in Chappaqua, New York. She writes as follows, Dear Evan, I am in the midst of a divorce. The proceedings are generally amicable. However, I am very concerned about the holiday schedule. Christmas is one of the most cherished days for me and my family, and I can't imagine spending it without my kids. I'm not sure how to even bring this up to my soon-to-be ex-husband. What advice can you give me? Bonnie from Chappaqua, fantastic question. Look, let me say this. The holiday time for people going through divorce and separating is one of the hardest times for people. Look, as you mentioned, you're used to spending every Christmas holiday with your children. Now, the reality sets in now that you're separating and divorcing that that may not be the case. There are going to be days and nights and weekends and holidays and time in the summer that perhaps you are not necessarily going to be with your children. Again, not easy. But if Christmas is really important to you, make that clear to your soon-to-be ex-husband. Let him know how important it is to you and your family, the tradition. Perhaps figure out a way to divide the holiday. Look, for some people, Christmas Day is more important than Christmas Eve. For other people, it might be the opposite, where Christmas Eve is more important than Christmas Day. And you know what? If both Christmas Eve and Christmas Day are important to you, then use that as something to make clear and be willing to perhaps give other things or concede other points to your soon-to-be ex-husband. Look, everything's a negotiation. You have to pick your spots, what's most important. And if Christmas is important to you, negotiate it, bring it up to him, explain to him why it's important, and perhaps even find a way to include him so he too can feel like he's part of the children's holiday plans and schedule. Our featured guest on this week's episode of the Shine Up Podcast is Dr. Tracy Marks. Dr. Marks is a general and forensic psychiatrist of over 20 years. She's the author of the new book, Why Am I So Anxious? Powerful Tools for Recognizing Anxiety and Restoring Your Peace. Dr. Marks, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you with us. I'm happy to be here. And I'm excited for today's episode. We're going to talk all about mental health, anxiety, and your book. But let's start with what inspires you to help people with mental health issues? Oh, wow. I think I've always had a soft spot for people who were hurting inside versus, you know, broke your foot or were social outcasts. I'm thinking about when I was a child in school, kind of wanted to befriend the person who didn't have any friends, that kind of thing. But as my, you know, my, my motivation has evolved over the years, really wanting to help people with emotional pain over physical pain is really what got me to change my specialty of choice in medical school from internal medicine to psychiatry. And I I just think the impact of having, having someone feel 
mentally well is just so great that I just think it's it's central. And Dr. Marks, I absolutely love that hearing you say that. We hear so much about mental health coming off the pandemic now that we're on the other side of it. And it feels good to, to, to say that we're now on the other side of the pandemic. Give us a stigma or an example of a stigma that's attached to mental health. And why is it troubling? Despite all the progress that we've made as a society, in the field, in your profession, is there an example of the stigma that is still attached to mental health? Oh, yes. I would say probably the the one that's the most prevalent and even dangerous is that people with mental health problems are dangerous or violent. So mass shootings are because someone went crazy and lost, even though sometimes that is the case. It, that is a minority of people who become delusional and then become violent toward others. But I think it's just, it's people, it scares people to have someone who's doesn't appear stable. And that's just kind of the first place we go is, uh-oh, are you going to hurt me? And Dr. Marks, you mentioned the violence and I know your work sometimes crosses over to the world of criminal law and the criminal justice system. So tell us about that. Yes. So forensic psychiatry is the interface between legal issues and psychiatric issues. I don't do any pathology or crime scene uh, analysis. It's about evaluating any kind of mental health issues related to whatever the legal situation is. So in the case of, say, a criminal matter, if someone uh, is accused of committing a crime Sometimes someone will raise the insanity defense. Was this person negatively affected or, or did the person's mental condition affect their behavior in such a way that they should be considered not responsible for doing what they did? There's also civil issues, which is completely different, but, and that's looking at mental health issues in the setting of civil legal proceeding. Dr. Marks, tell us how the perception of mental health has changed over the years since you first started in the field? Well, I would say that when I first started in the early 2000s to now, how we talk about it, just being, just the amount of time we spend talking about mental health has increased dramatically. It's no longer something people have to whisper about, or at least that we, we, we hear more about it publicly. Now, that said, there, there has then some negative fallout from that of maybe people overcalling too much of, of calling themselves as having a mental disorder or trying to diagnose themselves or others, you know, kind of throw around the term, well, my ADD, you know, kept me from doing this. And, you know, do you really have ADHD or did you just watch a lot of videos <laughs> online? Sure. But still, I think the the net result of all of this, of the increase in awareness and people talking about it has still been a good thing and has advanced the field to reduce stigma and increase knowledge because ignorance perpetuates stigma. So the, the more people can understand you, the, the better they can be in helping themselves and being more compassionate with other people. Now, I think that's such a wonderful point, and I think you're right. So many people have talked about it. So many people are being much more open about it. I think there's celebrities. I think there's professional athletes, Simone Biles, other 
athletes across the board that are being open about whatever they're experiencing, which has allowed the conversation to take place. And for so many people, if they know that Simone Biles has experienced something or another athlete or someone else, in in a way, does that normalize a situation or an experience for someone who may otherwise be uncomfortable sharing what they're going through? Absolutely. The more people that raise their hand and say, hey, I'm going through this, the more others can come out of the shadows and feel like they're not alone because it can be very isolating to feel like no one understands what you're dealing with. And a lot of people don't understand what you're dealing with, but the more we talk about it, the more we have conversations about it, the more people can understand, even if they don't have the experience themselves, they can seem or feel like they may, might be able to relate. So the, so, so not only you know, our increasing awareness over the years. I attribute a lot of that to social media and things, but also celebrities and other people coming forward saying, yes, these are my struggles and this is what I've been through. And then having other people say, hey, really? She's having this too? Okay, maybe I'm not so bad. Dr. Marks, you've written about good girl syndrome. What is that and why is it problematic? So, for the record, it's not an official syndrome or medical uh, disorder, just, you know, one of these terms, sure. made up terms. Okay. <laughs> you know, behind it really is the, it's kind of related to this concept of toxic positivity too, of you kind of, you always need to think, look on the bright side of things. Let's not spend a lot of time talking about negative things because we don't want to make everybody else feel bad or, or lift yourself up by just making yourself think that everything's going to be Okay. But the good girl syndrome is kind of a different take on that of you're not allowed, you're expected or society expects you as a woman to, to be agreeable, to not make waves at the expense of your own will and desires and intentions. So, you know, things happen, but you can't, you're not supposed to own negative outcomes or, or be too aggressive or assertive because you're supposed to be agreeable and and accept and that makes you more acceptable. Dr. Marks, you, you touched on toxic positivity to start that answer. And so I want to ask you about that because so many people think to themselves, well, only if I could be more positive, only if I can see the world in a different way, only if I could always see the glass as half full. When people take that approach for everything, and they harbor otherwise not so positive emotions and not so positive feelings and try to turn them into a positive outlook. What's the danger? What's the concern? What ends up happening as a result? So what ends up happening is when you take the extreme. So let me just back up a minute in that there's, there's, there's two sides of this. On the one hand, the, there needs to be some acknowledgement that 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 you have this negative experience or you have a negative reaction to something but if you you spend too much time over focusing on that and ruminating about it going churning it over and over in your head then kind of everything becomes negative if the, your reaction to that is to pretend like you don't really have these negative feelings because that makes you look that looks bad you're not acknowledging that uh, your true feelings. So, so what do we do about this? What you do is you still acknowledge that, okay, 
let's say I lost a promotion at work. I'm very disappointed. I feel, I feel taken for granted. And I'm even very angry and hate my boss. But I'm going to, I'm still going to try and be hopeful that I can rise above this. Maybe I'll look for a different position, a different responsibility. Maybe this will give me some more time to develop. So that positive spin on it is a way for me to manage my negative emotions and find a bright side without disavowing these other negative emotions that I really do have, like hate and envy and things like that. The toxic part of it would be to, for me to pretend like I, I don't really feel that way when That's I really example. do. That's a great example and great distinction. Dr. Marks, in my area of expertise, the family law field as a practicing divorce and family law attorney, the issue of mental health often comes up in separation, divorce, or when people are trying to keep their families together. But sometimes people use mental health against their spouse. If someone's going through a mental health issue, one spouse may try to use that against the other spouse as a weapon. How would you advise and guide people with mental health issues who struggle to keep their families together? That's a really difficult situation because the person who wants to use the spouse's or the partner's mental health against them has no incentive not to do that. They are using it as a weapon and they want, if they're already in the mental space of wanting to win no matter what, then trying to get them to pull back and show more compassion for their partner really is kind of a fruitless argument or point to make because that's not where they're, what they're trying to do anyway. On the other hand, the person who say, let's say, wants a separation or a divorce, but doesn't want to doesn't want to rub their partner's face in it. They just want out. They're not necessarily trying to be dangerous or um, sorry, they're not necessarily trying to be hurt. I would I would say that I would say that that person has to keep top of mind the ultimate end point here. Yes, they want to be out of the relationship. But ultimately, they still, they've still got a family that they've got to think about. They've got children. And at the end of the day, if they want to minimize the damage to their children, they've got to be as compassionate and loving toward the spouse that they don't want to be with as much as they can just to get, get past this, this, this transition that they're trying to make and, and look more toward the future than the present. Dr. Morris, that's, that's, that's a great point. And, and I want to ask you about medication because everyone has a different philosophy. And I want to ask you about your philosophy. Do you have a certain thought as to when medication is the answer for a mental health problem and when it's not? Yes, I do have thoughts about that. Generally, we look at treating someone with medication when the symptoms are severe enough to cause functional problems for them. What would those functional problems look like? We kind of look in three areas, their personal life, which would include like their own personal hygiene, their, their sleeping, things like that, how they're functioning, occupational life or school, if they're still in school. And, and they're also their relationships, how much is how they feel affecting their relationships. Are you storming through the house, snapping at everybody, 
slamming doors, everyone around you is tiptoeing and unhappy. You've got a bigger problem than just kind of suffering in silence where no one notices. Also, but that said, medications aren't for everyone. Now, I have seen people who have kind of limped along in life with, say, a moderate level of depression, and they, they're still able to go to work every day, earn a living, all of these things, but they're really unhappy and their own interventions aren't working well enough for them, but they're kind of operating at half mass. Finally, that person finally decides to come for treatment and try medication because they were against it before. It just, the lights turn on, their life is so much better, and they have regrets about losing 10 years of dragging their leg behind them. So sometimes medication is helpful for people who, who be, not because their symptoms are so severe that everything's falling down behind them, sure. but because their own interventions like exercise, diet, optimizing sleep, meditation, things like that aren't helping them enough and they're still suffering. Dr. Marks, earlier you mentioned ADHD and it's something a lot of professionals who lead busy lives, they may struggle with. Can you share with us some techniques and tips that you recommend to ease the effects of ADHD? Yes. So I will say that this is very individual because some things that help some people don't help others. And over time, I've seen my adult patients, I only treat adults, have gone through several iterations of things that they do to help themselves. But I think one of the big areas that has a huge impact um, on the lives of people with ADHD and those around them is the problem with time and conceptualizing time or having trouble <laughs> being able to measure how long things sh really do take. And I struggle with this with my teenage son every single morning. I want five more minutes to sleep and five <laughs> minutes becomes 30. And I keep yeah. telling him, you don't know what five minutes is. So one exercise to help with that is just doing regular tasks and writing down how long that takes you and thinking through. So I, you know, I did this exercise with my son. Let's think through how, how long does it really take you to brush your teeth, go to the bathroom, all these things. And with that exercise, we figured out he actually takes two hours to get ready in the morning. He thought he only took like 15 or 20 minutes, all these, all this time. That's, that's what great. he thought. Yeah. So, so I think that's one of the things that that's just one approach to improving your life because that time thing affects other people too. People get angry. They feel like you don't respect their time and it can cause a lot of relationship problems. No, that's a great example. Great story. Dr. Morris, with the political and cultural climate in the U.S. and all the divisiveness that we hear about and that's been going on for years, is our country at a low point? in terms of general anxiety and the stress? You know, that's a great question because I think the the quick knee jerk is to say, oh yeah, because we've got this going on, we've got all of this un political unrest and, uh, and violence and all of this stuff. But I think every generation says this, <laughs> you know, so someone, you know, 20 or 30 years older than me could say, well, when in my day we had X, Y, and Z. I think, though, the difference now is I do think there is a greater impact with kind of the global pandemic issues and things like that. That is not something that's been present every single generation. Sure. But then also the increased 
awareness and conversation that we're having about this in multiple settings that that gives the appearance that we're talking about it more. So therefore it must be more present. There have, there have been people suffering with anxiety under the radar for years. There may be a few more, some more now, but I think now we're just more aware of it. Dr. Marsh, we talked about your inspiration and where that came from to get involved in the field, but tell us about a mentor that you've had in your field or someone who has had an incredible or played an incredible role in your career and your passion to help others? Boy, oh boy, oh boy. So I pointed out a couple of people in my acknowledgement section in my book who I felt like played a role in getting me to where I am, just kind of like these steps along the way. And one of which was a mentor of mine in medical school. I thought she was uh, very impressive. And she helped me transition from internal medicine, which is where the specialty that I chose to move over into psychiatry. I still am connected with her. To, and then my residency program director, there's no, this isn't just, this isn't intentional that these are women, but hey. That's, and then there was also a male attending as well. But, the, you know, I was really also impressed or have looked up to a woman attorney that I worked with on a legal case who I just felt, I just was so moved by her enthusiasm for the work that she does. I mean, you just sit in her presence and she's talking about the law and you could just see, you know, her face light up as she's talking. And I'm thinking all, and she was older. She may be retired now, but at that time I thought you've been doing this all these years and you're not jaded. Like you're still excited to be working in this field. And so <laughs> that was really impressive. And I, I channel her from time to time. No, it's fantastic. And, and look, I always get asked, you know, as a matrimonial and divorce attorney, how am I not jaded and all those things? And I can totally <laughs> relate to that story. Dr. Marks, you mentioned your book. And so let's talk about that. It came out in August of this year. Why am I so anxious? Absolutely fantastic. What was your inspiration to write the book at this moment in time? At this moment in time, or what prompted me to, to start now at this time was I had had several requests from people watching my YouTube channel or YouTube videos for something written. I'd see people say, I take notes, but do you have anything written? And I realized, well, I don't because I'm so busy making videos. So I started <laughs> out with a, a, a bipolar manual because that was the easier thing for me to kind of pull together fast. And then my next project was going to be starting from scratch writing on anxiety. But then my publisher approached me. And so when it comes down to it, that's really what got me on the track to doing it is being asked about writing the book. Throughout your research, throughout your work and the, the videos on YouTube, which are great and, and such an incredibly valuable resource for people, in, in, in the writing the book on anxiety, what did you find was misunderstood about anxiety? People use the word. It's a buzzy word. They throw it around. Did anything come across as misunderstood that you would want people to know? Two things come to my mind. One is the idea that there's a limited number of things you can do for anxiety. And therefore, if, you know, if I do breathing and that doesn't work, then nothing works. And even people having a hopelessness about being able to help their anxiety on their own. And I even had some of that in my practice. I would talk with people about doing things. Oh, I've tried all that stuff. Nothing works. And where what I came to realize is that 
true. There, not everything works for everything. And that's the key is that you've got to take some of these self-help tools and layer them. You can't, one thing isn't going to knock out every symptom for everything. And that's even the case with medication. You can have anxiety, take your medication, and it's not like you're going to be anxiety free. You just may have less of this or less of that. And then the second thing that kind of popped to my mind, which is a little more niche of a, of a realization is I do think there's a misunderstanding about OCD. I hear it and I guess I'm going on this based on like TikTok videos and things where people <laughs> will just say, well, you know, my OCD, my OCD stirred up today. Da, da, da. People with OCD really suffer. I mean, it is a, it can be really severe. And for some people with it, it can be, it, it seems minimizing for people to just kind of throw it out there like that. Oh, well, I'm cleaning today. My OCD's, uh, you know, up. So I do think, and, and so I do think that having a better understanding of the extremes. So what mild anxiety looks like and what severe anxiety looks like. And then a lot of people are in the middle. I think that's very helpful to just have a better perspective on what we're dealing with here. We talked about social media and, and you have these videos on YouTube and, and the book and, and such great stuff. And the ability for people to access information has never been better. It's never been greater, but there's also another side to it in terms of who's putting information out there when people use the words, whether it's OCD or bipolar or anxiety, is there a concern? Is there a risk that some of the information or the, the, the content that a lay person may be putting out there or posting is troubling and it can do more harm than good? Yes, absolutely. And I'm not sure what the answer or solution is to that because it, it shouldn't be, well, let's all just shut up about it and go back to the way it was where we don't talk about sure. this. Sure. But perhaps having a way for social media channels to authenticate authoritative sources so that people can have a better idea of what they what they're they're more likely, what they here, whether or not it's more likely to be accurate or not. But even if everything's labeled that way, still people will be attracted to the, you know, the two things that you need to know that your doctor never told you that this is the solution and you'll cure this. I mean, there will still be those videos and people will still want to watch those videos. So um, no, no great answer. No great answer. Yeah. It's a double-edged sword. But in many respects, it's outweighed by all the valuable and wonderful resources. And I would think it's also incumbent to an extent on the person who's accessing the information to do their best to filter and to find the most credible and authoritative resources and information out there. Correct. Absolutely. Dr. Morris, you've done so much in the field, over 20 years in the field of psychiatry. You have the book, you have the videos. As you think about what's next for you, and give thought to your career, the past, the future. What do you want your legacy? Two things. I'd like it to be a continuation of what I've already started, even if I'm not attributed to contributing to this movement of more information, better understanding of mental health. Where I'm kind of going in part two of my legacy is moving into creating a mental 
uh, wellness type of space where people can get a little bit more support beyond just watching a video about this topic for five minutes and learn how to live, live well, live better. We all need that. But where do we get that information from? So being able to help people and equip people on how, how on how to live better and be better. Dr. Marks, I love that. How to live well, live better. Your book, Why Am I So Anxious, out this year is a must read. You have the videos, the book, as I mentioned, the incredible resources. Tell everyone where they can find out more information about you, access the videos, and pick up a copy of the book. Sure. So my main hub is my website, which is markspsychiatry.com, and that's M-A-R-K-S, and which is my last name, and then psychiatry.com. The main social channels that I'm on, and, and my book is also there as well, but it's also available wherever books are sold. And then my social media places where I hang out is YouTube is the main place, and then Instagram and TikTok. And my handle for all three of those is Dr. Tracy Marks, D-R, and then Tracy, T-R-A-C-E-Y, Marks. Dr. Marks, this was absolutely fantastic. I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Episode 52 of the Shine On Podcast. Dr. Tracy Marks was absolutely terrific. Her dedication to the mental health field and education. Wow. Her book, Why Am I So Anxious? A must read. Producer Dave, what a show. A terrific show once again. And I'll say it again. What am I thankful for? The Shine On Podcast, man. Absolutely. There <laughs> we go. And Dave, we're thankful for you. And thank you to all the listeners. You can listen to the podcast on all major podcast platforms. Apple and wherever else you're listening to your podcast, follow the podcast and subscribe. I'm Evan Shine, and I'll talk to you again real soon. Mm-hmm.